We are going to look this morning, as we continue to talk about Jesus as the master teacher, we're going to look at a, uh, a, an account of a lesson that Jesus gave that most of us probably know pretty well. Most of us can probably quote at least a verse or two from this particular lesson that Jesus gave. It's the lesson that we often refer to as the Good Shepherd Sermon. But I'm going to do something a little different with this this morning because oftentimes when we look at this particular lesson, we just look at what Jesus said without considering what was going on around that lesson, without considering the context. And I talk about context a lot because I think it's really important and I think that oftentimes when we get into Scripture, and we go down a path we shouldn't go, when we, when we land on ideas that really aren't there in the text, it's usually because we've ignored the context. It's usually because we've looked at something in isolation without considering who was this spoken to, or who was this written to, what were the circumstances under which it was spoken or written, and what happened to prompt it being said or written? What happened just before this? And so I want us to look at Jesus' Good Shepherd speech this morning in the context of what happened just before. Because I think that when we do that, we're going to see some things in this brief lesson that perhaps we didn't think about before. And as a sort of a prelude to this, I want to talk a little bit about chapters and verses. Chapters and verses we find in our Bibles that are there to sort of help us find stuff, right? You know, help us, you know, look things up by number. Because it would be very difficult if you had to find something, for example, in the book of John, and you just had to keep leafing through until you stumbled upon the thing you were looking for. Whereas if you have a chapter number and a verse number, you can go right to that thing that you were wanting to read. But what we sometimes forget about chapters and verses is that those are not part of the original scripture text. In fact, the current numbering system that we use in our Bibles didn't come about until centuries after the New Testament was written. The chapter divisions were actually added about 1244 A.D. So tw almost 12 centuries after the New Testament was completed, somebody got the idea of dividing the books up into chapters. And it wasn't for another 300 years that somebody decided, that's probably not a small enough division. We should stick some verses in there. And so that happened around 1551. But as you look at those numbers, you can see that's really like a way long time after these books were written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these chapter and verse divisions are not themselves divinely inspired. Somebody had a good idea, and they implemented it, and other people went along. But what we also have to consider is that the purpose of that system was to provide easy reference notation for scholars. 
it wasn't really intended to make the text clearer for the reader. Because back in those days, people weren't generally allowed to read the scripture. There was a, there was a hierarchical religious organization that made it its business to keep people from reading the scripture. So it wasn't really for that purpose. It was to give scholars the easy ability to, to notate things that they wanted to make reference to. It wasn't really there or wasn't really created to make it easier for us to read. And the reason I point that out is that oftentimes the divisions of chapters and verses are kind of unfortunate. That sometimes breaks happen in places where breaks really shouldn't. That sometimes where the, the individual that created the system decided to divide one, one section from another really doesn't make an awful lot of sense. And we're going to see that in this particular circumstance. And it's why oftentimes when we read Jesus' Good Shepherd sermon, we don't consider what came before because it's in a whole different chapter. And so we read the text as though that chapter didn't exist, and we start reading at the beginning of John chapter 10, which is where Jesus' lesson begins. But if we do that, we miss why Jesus said these things in the first place. And to get that, we have to go back into what we would refer to as John chapter 9. Because what happens in John chapter 9? Jesus heals a man who was born without sight. And after his healing, the man's interrogated by the Pharisees about the one who healed him. And they also question his parents. And then they get into an argument with the man, and they throw him out of the synagogue. And then Jesus finds the man, having been thrown out of the synagogue, and begins a conversation with him. And it's important that we see all of those things in order to understand why Jesus says what he says when he starts what we refer to as the Good Shepherd speech. So let's just take a look at John chapter 9, starting at the first verse. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now let's just take note of that. Because to us, that might seem like a weird question. But it's not a weird question, because the question that seemed perfectly legitimate to Jesus' disciples, and it's a question that oftentimes seems perfectly legitimate to people who would ask a similar question today. People would see a person who has experienced some kind of misfortune. In this particular case, he's been born without sight. And people would say, somebody must have done something terrible for that to happen. Somebody must have committed some great sin in order for this terrible thing to happen to this person. Was it something he did? Was it something his parents did? What, what sin caused this problem for this man? Well, notice what Jesus' response is. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God 
might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples, this man is not blind because somebody sinned. It's not his fault. It's not his parents' fault. In fact, Jesus says, in this particular circumstance, this situation exists for this person in order that the works of God might be displayed. And we'll see what Jesus means by that. Because after saying this, John says he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went, and he washed, and he came home seeing. And his neighbors, and those who had formerly seen him begging, asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, no, I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Well, where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. So let's just stop and consider that for a moment. Why does Jesus do this weird thing? Because it's kind of a weird thing, right? Spits on the ground, take, takes, the, takes the place where he spit, makes some mud, puts it on the man's eyes and says, Siloam, which is a pool that was nearby, go, go and wash there. Why does he do that? Jesus doesn't need to do that. Jesus could have just said, be healed. Have your sight restored. We see him do that on other occasions, do we not? He doesn't have to go through this strange ritual with, with mud and washing and all. Why does he do that? Well, here's something that we want to note. This man did not ask Jesus to heal him of his blindness. We see that in other places. In fact, we remember a couple of noteworthy instances where Blind people came to Jesus and said, Lord, please let me receive my sight. And he healed them on the basis of their request. This man didn't ask Jesus for anything. In fact, it's very clear from his conversation, he didn't really know who Jesus was. And so what Jesus does is give him an opportunity to build faith. Because he didn't have faith in the beginning. He didn't come to Jesus believing that Jesus could heal him. He was just sitting there and Jesus decided to make him an object lesson. So Jesus gave him an opportunity. Here, I'm going to do something. I'm going to put this mud on your eyes and I want you to go wash your face at Siloam. Now the man could have said, this is just crazy. I'm not going to do that. And just sat there and he would have remained blind for the rest of his life. But instead, he said, it's worth a shot. 
<laughs> I, I don't lose anything by trying. And so he goes and he finds the pool and he washes and he's able to see. Jesus provided him an opportunity to develop faith. Jesus did not impose the power of God on him. He gave the man the opportunity to find the power of God for himself and accept it by his own action. Does that sound at all familiar? Is that not what God does for us? He doesn't impose His grace upon us. He gives us the opportunity to respond to His direction. And when we follow that direction, we receive what He has to give us. But once this has happened, people are confused. You know, this can't be the same guy who used to sit here and beg, because that guy was blind. And this man is not. And so they were confused. Some people said, no, that's the same guy. And some people went, that can't be the same guy. It's just a guy that looks like him. But he insists, no, I, I am that guy who used to sit here and beg because I was blind, but now I'm not. And they're like, how did that happen? And he said, well, a man named Jesus came and he put some mud on his, my eyes and he told me to go wash and I did and now I can see. So they brought the man to the Pharisees who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Here's one of the first things that we're going to get from this context that is important when we get into Jesus' talk later. This man is brought to the Pharisees, and we've talked about the Pharisees before in this series of lessons. They were the leaders of the Jewish people, primarily political leaders, but they were also considered moral leaders. They were the people that, look, that people looked to as the example of the kind of person that you ought to be if you were a religious individual. And so it's to this group of people that they bring this man. And it turns out that the day on which Jesus had done this, and this may have been quite some time later, we don't know exactly what the timeline is here, how long it took them to, to take him to the Pharisees. But it was probably at least the next day, if not several days later. But the day on which the event happened was the Sabbath. And what do we remember about the Sabbath? We remember the command, right? From the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Nobody does anything on the Sabbath. No work happens on the Sabbath. And so the first thing that the Pharisees hear when this man is brought in is that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. So that already puts them in a certain mindset. Here's a man doing stuff on the Sabbath day that he's not supposed to be doing. Bad enough he's healing blind people, just left and right, willy-nilly. But he's doing it on the Sabbath when nobody's supposed to do anything. 
So the Pharisees asked the man how he received his sight. And the man tells the story again. He put some mud on my eyes, I washed, now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Now, from our perspective, that's a little strange, isn't it? Here's a man who's been blind all his life. And now he can see. And their concern is not, wow, a man who was blind can see now. Their concern is, some dude worked on the Sabbath. That's the thing they're, that's what they draw from this. This man's not from God, he didn't keep the Sabbath. But then other, others ask, well, how could a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And they turned to the blind man, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he's a prophet. But they still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. So they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, his parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Again, kind of a strange thing. Pharisees bring the man's parents in. Was this really your son? Was he really, has he really been blind all his life? How did that happen? And they're like, ask him. <laughs> we don't know. Because they knew that the Pharisees had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus would be thrown out of the synagogue. In, in, in effect would be forbidden to come to worship. And so to protect themselves from that, they point back at their son. Well, ask him. We, 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 don't, we don't know how this thing happened. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I can see. And they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they hurled insults at him. And they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now, now that's remarkable. 
You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now we understand why Jesus' disciples asked the question that they asked when they first encountered the man. Who sinned that this man should be born blind? Was it him or someone else? Now we know where they got that from. Because that was the belief of the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed if a bad thing happened to you, it must be your fault. Or it's somebody's fault. Some sin happened that made this bad thing happen to you. And their only answer for this man... If you were really born blind, it's because you were steeped in sin at birth. And again, that may sound a little strange to us, but there are a lot of people who believe exactly like those Pharisees, even today. There are a lot of people that believe that it's possible for a child to be born steeped in sin. Just like those Pharisees. Jesus, you'll remember, already said, that, that's not the case. This man's not blind because he sinned or his parents sinned or anybody sinned. But there's still people today that cling to that old Pharisaical falsehood. That a child can be born in sin. But when Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. So tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you now have seen him. Notice what, see what Jesus does there, right? Now, now you've seen him. How come you've seen him? Because I, I gave you that power to see. You've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I've come into the world, so that the blind will see. And those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this. And they said, what? <laughs> Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Once again, Jesus affirms what he had affirmed to his disciples. Physical blindness is not because somebody sinned. 
He said, if you were truly blind, that wouldn't be an indication of a guilt of sin. But, you claim to see when in fact you do not. And there lies the guilt. That's where the sin is. The sin is not in a man whose eyes don't work. The sin is in those whose spiritual vision is blocked because they refuse to see. There's where your guilt is, Jesus says. And now, Jesus begins what we refer to often as the Good Shepherd lesson. But now, think about what we've just heard as we look at what Jesus says. And understand better now why Jesus is about to say what he says. See it in context. He begins, truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate, for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And Jesus used this figure of speech, John interpolates here. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. And what was he telling them? What Jesus is saying when he talks about shepherds, is he's pointing to these Pharisees. And he's saying, you are the self-appointed shepherds of the people. But you are trying to get into the sheep pen by a way that you've created and not by the gate that God has provided. God has given you a gate into the sheep pen. But you are trying to climb in some other way. And in so doing, you reveal yourselves to be thieves and robbers. You are not legitimate shepherds. Because the real shepherd calls the sheep by name, leads them, and they follow him because they know his voice. The sheep are never going to follow a stranger. And who's that stranger? These Pharisees that he's, that he's talking to. The sheep are not going to follow the stranger. They're going to run from him because they don't recognize his voice. And Jesus said again, 
Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, I'm the gate. I am the entrance way into the place where God's sheep are. Everybody else who's tried to get in here and this means you Pharisees, are thieves and robbers. Whoever comes in through me will be saved. Your only desire is to destroy the sheep. I've come that the sheep can have life. And not just life, but life to its fullest. I, Jesus says, am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. What's the difference, Jesus is asking, between me and you, Pharisees? Number one, I'm willing to give my life for the sheep. You don't care for the sheep at all. You are willing to allow the sheep to be consumed by wolves. Because they're not really your sheep. You don't own them. They don't belong to you. You've not been given authority over them. So you run when a challenge comes. And you let the sheep be destroyed. You don't love them the way that I love them. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus says, I have earned the right to be shepherd 
because I laid down my life for the sheep. And not just the sheep you Pharisees think you control. I have other sheep. Sheep you've not seen. Sheep you don't know about. And I'm going to bring those in too. And they will all be one flock. And they will all have one shepherd. And Jesus says, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. See, Jesus knew what was already in their hearts. He knew that already among the Pharisees was circulating the idea, we need to get rid of this Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to lay down my life. You're not going to take it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And when I've laid it down, you know what? I'm going to take it up again. Because my Father has given me that authority, that power. And the Jews that heard these words were divided. Many of them said, he's, <laughs> he's demon-possessed. He's raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Consider now the lesson about the Good Shepherd in the context of what led up to it. This lesson grew out of Jesus' conversation with the man who had been born blind, who had been healed, and who had been thrown out of the synagogue by the Pharisees. And some of these Pharisees were there when Jesus found the man and had this conversation. And the conversation went from Jesus talking to the man who had been blind to him talking to the Pharisees. And it's important that we understand that Jesus in talking about the good shepherd and the gate and the sheep and all of those things is not talking to his disciples. He's not presenting a lesson to his disciples assuring them of his shepherdhood. Which is sometimes the tonality that we give to this sermon. It's not that. Jesus is looking his enemies in the eye and saying, you call yourselves shepherds. I am the shepherd. 
I am the one God has appointed to lead the sheep. And they're going to follow me. Because I know them. And they know me. And they, like sheep following a shepherd whose voice they know, are going to follow me. And I love them so much that I am willing to die for them. Whereas you, who call yourselves shepherds, don't care anything about them at all. And when they hurt, when they're in trouble, when they're afflicted, when they're suffering like this man who had been blind, you run. You're not there for them. Because you don't care. I not only care, but I care so much that I I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep and then take that life up again. Jesus intended to draw a contrast between the selfish leadership of the Pharisees, which was all about getting people to look at them and think they were important, and his own leadership which was demonstrated by compassion, as he had compassion on this man who had been born blind and healed him even though it was the Sabbath. And technically, that was working on the Sabbath. But Jesus, even on the Sabbath, had compassion for this man as a shepherd has compassion for his sheep. And healed him. And Jesus was going to further demonstrate his compassion for the sheep by sacrificing himself to save them. When we see the words of Jesus in that context, gives them a whole new power, does it not? And we see what he means with a whole new clarity. Because the, the lesson about the Good Shepherd is not one of pastoral reassurance. It is one of drawing stark contrast between himself and his opponents who thought they were shepherds and pointing to himself and said, no, this is what a real shepherd is. A real shepherd is one who lays down his life for the sheep. So sheep, what lessons do we learn? Several, but let's take five points because that's how many fingers we have. We can count them for the rest of the week. Lesson number one. Not all misfortune is the result of sin on the part of the afflicted. It is strange that as clear as Jesus' teaching is on this matter, 
And remember, the teaching of Jesus is not the first time that teaching was given. Did the Pharisees not read the book of Job? Think of all the terrible things that happened to Job. Was it because Job had done something wrong? His friends tried to convince him that it was. They gave endless speeches, which you can read in the book, trying to convince Job, Job, you must have done something terrible for all this stuff to happen to you. But the whole purpose of that book is to teach us, no, bad things happen to good people, not because good people did bad things. Sometimes it just happens. And Jesus clearly reinforces the lesson of Job in this passage, in dealing with this man who had been born blind. Lesson number two. Not all shepherds are genuine. The Pharisees wanted people to look at them as people to be followed. But they didn't really care about the people they wanted to follow them. They were interested only in gain for themselves, importance for themselves, position and power for themselves. We see a lot of shepherds like that today both in the secular world and in the religious world. People who use their position as leaders to build up themselves and don't really care about the people who are following them. Lesson number three. God has made one gate into the sheep pen and he's authorized one shepherd. Jesus said, I'm the gate, and I am the shepherd. If we want to come in where God's sheep are, Jesus is the one and only means for us to accomplish that. The Pharisees thought they could get into the sheep pen by climbing in on their own merit. You know, if we're just good enough, if we do all the things, if we tick off all of the, th the boxes on the checklist, we'll get into the sheep pen. Jesus said, that's not the way in. The way in is through me. We can't climb into the sheep pen. The wall's too high. We can only go in through the gate. And that gate is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You're not going to get in on your own. Number four. True sheep listen to and follow the true shepherd. Don't allow themselves to get distracted by all of the other voices saying, come over here. Listen to us. Do this. Follow us. Do what we tell you. Jesus said the sheep know me and they follow my voice. There's a reason we've spent as much time as we have on Sunday mornings this year 
looking at Jesus the Master Teacher because it's His voice we need to hear. And it's His voice we need to follow. And point number five, the shepherd proved his right, his authority to lead the sheep by dying for them. He demonstrated that he was the true shepherd by dying for the sheep. By sacrificing himself, his life, for the lives of the sheep. And then taking up that life again so that he could lead those sheep into and through eternity. Again, Jesus' lesson about the Good Shepherd is one that we've heard many times. But when we see it in the context in which it was actually presented, we see a whole new picture. And I hope that as we've looked at it this morning, you've found some new power in that lesson. Because it's not just you know, that pastoral assurance of Jesus being the shepherd and we being the sheep. It's also a warning about those other shepherds. And it's also an emphasis on the fact that one and only one shepherd has given his life for the sheep. And he's taken it up again so that he can lead the sheep into eternity. Listen to the shepherd this week. Go to his words in Scripture and find some new path to follow. Find something that Jesus said in the Scripture that inspires you, that moves you, that motivates you this week. And go where the shepherd directs you. Do as the shepherd calls you to do. Just find one thing. Find one instruction, one direction, one bit of wisdom, one bit of encouragement. Find something in the words of Jesus this week. Listen to the voice of the shepherd and follow. And if you're not yet on the path of following the shepherd, please know that he's calling for you. And that if you'll hear his voice and go where he leads you, he will not only bring you into the sheepfold of God where there is safety and security, but he has a place in eternity for you if you will follow him there. If you need encouragement in that regard, if you need assistance in, in knowing what to do in response to the voice, we would be glad to have the opportunity to talk with you about that and share with you together what we found in his word that might help get you on the path. Go with the shepherd this week. Let's stand and we'll sing.